Welcome to The Right Way Podcast. I'm Amanda Hampson. Thank you so much for that intro there, Amanda Hampson, the guest of The Right Way Podcast Program. You are listening to The Right Way Podcast Program. For those not in the know, I accidentally clicked the button. And I am your host, host with the most, Samuel James Elliott. Uh, I'm getting to talk to the lovely Amanda Hampson tonight, whom you heard from there, discussing her latest novel, Lovebirds. Lovebirds centers around Lizzie the matriarch of a family that is a house divided as it were uh, all of them kind of quite fractious in their dealings with one another a lot of long-standing issues that are not resolved uh lizzie's story somewhat begins or is sort of uh the catalyst for lizzie kind of getting their situation resolved is the death of her lifelong dear friend Ginny, uh who subsequently delivers a note albeit her relatives surviving relatives deliver a note to her which sort of, uh, without revealing the content of that, because I'll let Amanda talk more about that, uh, sort of sets forth Lizzie into going about reuniting her family. And yeah, uh, there's multiple different timelines. It kind of explains how characters kind of came to be as, as they were. One element of it I really, really particularly enjoyed was the inclusion of the Vietnam War and its sort of uh, lifelong impact, uh, horrendous impact on those that went there, those that were conscripted to go there. Uh, so I'm going to let Amanda talk about that, but I'd like it all to give a big digital round of applause to prolific author Amanda Hampson talking to me about her latest novel on the program, Lovebirds. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going tonight? Uh, great. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Samuel. I must say your bookcase that I'm seeing is is a lot neater than mine. You've got the the Penguin Classics that have like their own shelf there all aligned. It's looking looking a lot pretty. Mine's absolute dog's breakfast. Well, you see, you need, a, you need a bookcase strategy and my bookcase strategy is size. Okay. Everything is together with the same size book. That's why it looks so neat. Do you have double? Do you have one behind the other or no? No. No, that's a good that's a good policy to have. That's that's death to finding a book. <laughs> I, it is. It is. I I had to because we've kind of in some ways I've just I was sort of somewhat moved here and we kind of had to downsize a bit. So there is doubles behind there, but I know what's there because I've manually put it there, so I'll be able to find it in the fullness of time. Anyway, I've it. already already hijacked the conversation before we got started, but let's let's get stuck into the nitty gritty. So, conversation and question I always like to start off with, Amanda, is where did the idea for Lovebirds originate from? I feel as though it had been uh, fermenting, let's say, probably for four or five years. Um, it sort of started, I think, even when my own son, who was about to turn twenty five, was fifteen. And I had him when I was 42, so I was a much older mother. So I was kind of aware of the generation gap between a 15-year-old and somebody who was basically middle-aged. And, I mean, I, you know, I was very youthful. I would play football with him and things like that. But, you know, as you probably know from a lot of novels, um, it starts with one idea and then, it extrapolates, well, what if this was a grandmother and what if there was this and, and you know, you sort of expand from there. And on top of that, I had this very strong um, urge to have a, a protagonist in her 60s, an older woman, who was very three-dimensional. I feel that a lot of older women particularly are depicted as nosy neighbours, nasty mothers-in-law, um, uh, you know, just Karens and, you know, I, there's obviously, we were young ones <laughs> and if we're grumpy, maybe we've got something to be grumpy about. So I said, well, let's go and explore this woman's life. So let's see everything that has made her into the woman she is today. And we start to see a completely different character. Let's talk about this, this woman, this, this life, because when, when we first meet her, it's kind of, um, I guess it's becoming probably more topical than when you started writing it, but the, how, how sort of profoundly lonely and isolated she is even from her own family, even though there's no, it's not like it's COVID-19 and there's, there's lockdown restrictions. I mean, they're, they're freely there, but that's the first thing that I kind of uh, felt was the sort of overwhelming sense of isolation from, from immediate family members. Talk me a little bit about that, man, because that's the kind of thing that stood out to me straight away. Um, well, so, you know, we've, we discover through time that she was, she ended up as a single mother and single mothers often have to put a huge amount of effort into work. So she, she developed a career from there that she's worked until quite recently. 
And of course, once that ends, you know, if you were in the kind of um, uh, public service job that she was in, you would find a lot of your colleagues are much, much younger. And so when you pop out the top into retirement and it becomes clear that she didn't really want to retire, you're not going to have a lot of friends around you the way that, you know, somebody who's been playing golf for 20 years might have. And on top of that, you know, we find out that um, her son, Tom, through reasons we discover, has ended up with a jail sentence. And she's sort of got offside with both her daughters-in-law, which is not uncommon, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that is a tolerance issue. You know, sometimes older people can be intolerant and it's something you just absolutely cannot do around your son-in-law or daughter-in-law because you will be the one on the outside. So through a series of misunderstandings more than anything, she's found, and stubbornness, she's found herself um, isolated. It's interesting that you mentioned misunderstandings because there's sort of um, another thing I took away early on was a was kind of a profound understanding that was kind of a very perceptive within seeing her sort of deeper character. And I don't know if it's something because it's been garnered from this lifelong friendship, but I'm kind of talking about how Ginny sees her in a way that she doesn't really see herself. And then without revealing too much, this kind of letter that that Ginny leaves, I don't think I'm I'm giving anything too much away there, but this letter that Ginny leaves sort of acts as this catalyst for uh, Lizzie to sort of set forth and try and... uh, establish or re-establish ties of her family as well as kind of understand what's going on with Ray. And I thought that that was a really interesting theme. And I wonder if that was something that kind of happened organically, if that was something that early on kind of drew your attention was this feeling or this idea of people whom we are around lifelong friends, seeing stuff that we ourselves might not some of our best traits and qualities or an entire summary of a character. Well, yeah. I mean, I've got friends that I've known since I was in my 20s or I went to school with and you know the complexity that you see in these people and people that you've known all of these years and all of the things they've been through all of the people they've been the experiences they've had the heartbreaks the heartaches to that to us when we're together um we just know each other really really well and it's yeah, I think it's an incredible pleasure and a great joy. And there's a huge trust there that if if one of these of your close friends says, look, I've got something that I've got to tell you. There's something that you need to do. And I've, my feeling is that Ginny, because she gets this letter um, at Ginny's funeral, who she, whom she's been friends with since they were 10 years old, um, that would carry a lot of weight. And I think it's very... It's relatively common that people who are soon to die, who know that their days are numbered, have some insights mm. into what life is about. And so she conveys this to, to um, Elizabeth. These are the things that you need to do to, to repair your life. What about the, the, the way in which they've kind of like this friendship that's, that's endured? Because they're certainly not, I mean, they obviously love each other and have a deep affection and closeness with each other throughout their life. Like that's sustained, but they're not, uh, I wouldn't say they were altogether similar sort of characters. They're quite different in many regards. And I wondered what is what you think or what within the scope of your own writing and this story is what has assisted or enabled them to have this friendship that sort of endured for a lifetime when they're kind of uh, different people in many respects. Well, I think if there's an authenticity there, you know, you can have quite different people. And I think particularly with women, we form relationships in which we kind of support each other. So, you you know, um, if you are kind of an impulsive person, which I can be a bit impulsive, I've got a few friends that I turn to who will dampen me down. No, no, no. Do not write that letter now. Do not write that. I've literally had a friend say, do not write that email now. Okay, okay, okay. Because she's a sensible one. So I think you often have friends that are very different because you all uh, bring to the party something that's missing. And um, I'm very um, forthright and very determined and quite will take on really big 
things like you know running a marathon or something like that and so other people will other friends will turn to me and say oh look I want to do this thing knowing that I will be very supportive of that what, what with this supportive what about I kind of wanted to sort of what we've touched on briefly as to how the idea came about because I'm also intrigued obviously there's this particularly because you mentioned that it was about like this sort of age difference in the relationship between between someone that's the stark age difference between someone who's somewhat of a grandmotherly figure as well as a teenage boy and you know that sort of uh, dissociation there or disparity but what about the historical fiction component like when did when did that enter into it because it's it's so interesting to hear you say that because it's obviously seemingly founded upon like the the historical context and the shaping of of one of the characters and how that sort of forevermore defined the story. Tell me a little bit about that. When did that enter into it? Well, I always knew we were going to go back and see Elizabeth's life mm. as, a, as a girl. And, and I wanted to go back in and just into the defining moments. So we might miss 15 years and then we have another defining moment. So I guess it's like flashbacks in a film but to me, it's sort of like we open the curtain and go, okay, this is what happened at this point. Mm. And, and it doesn't necessarily need to be something dramatic. It just gives you an insight into the relationships in her life at that time. Um, so, and for me, because I'm 66, you know, I can remember all those things. I can remember going to the Easter show in the 1960s and, and how overwhelming and exciting and amazing that was because we were very undissimulated back then. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I just thought it would be, it's not, a, it's not a difficult thing for me to do because even though it's historic, I was there because mm. I'm historic. Uh, if you had to research it, I think it would be a lot of work and it would be very difficult to make it authentic because of the detail of the experience, I guess. And also, you know, I've been asked about the sort of intrusion of the Vietnam War and the effect that it had on them. And um, that was just a huge thing for my generation that was hanging over our head, that was hanging over the head of all the boys I grew up with. Would their number come up? Would they end up going to Vietnam? Um, just an outrageous and unfair situation of the... New Zealand and Australian government and the US government um, and it turned out to be like a thousand times worse than anybody imagined. Absolutely. And I mean, you've captured that. I did notice in the acknowledgements that you thank you or you did acknowledge several, several books that you, that you um, mentioned as well. So it seems like you might have done like a little bit of research anyway. Oh, I don't know. I did a lot of research because you can look back uh, you know, if you were to look back that something hap happened within your lifetime mm. and you wanted to write about it, you'd have to look at a number of different dimensions, not just what you remember, but what was that all about? And what, how did that system, I mean, sometimes you have to write, read two books to write a paragraph because it has to capture the essence of something. And so you have to be fully across it. And I also had to read quite a number of personal accounts it, because even though we don't go with Ray to Vietnam, I had to understand the effect that it might have on the rest of his life mm. um, from something authentic. And that's, you know, without being poncy about it, you have to actually honour people's actual experiences, not try and make that stuff up. I saw Ponzi and I mean, like you did it. I was wondering about that because I mean, like that's, that's naturally, I, I, I assume there must've been some, some level of, of concern about the, like you've mentioned, authenticity and the diff, like what were the difficulties in that? What did you, what did you have to get right? How did you go about doing that to ensure that you did sort of achieve well, that? Well, I mean, I did speak to a few vets. Most vets don't want to talk about it, full stop. Yeah, um, but there are some really good books written. Um, a couple of them that I just became fascinated by what a shit show basically it was. Mm. And that how much um, misinformation there was coming back because the Americans controlled all the information going out to Reuters and everybody else. So they could just report just stuff that just wasn't true. Yeah, um, so, yes, I, so I read a couple of books by journalists who were there, Australian, like Hugh Lunn was a journalist who was there at the time. But also... 
um, or you know, m- memoirs that that talked about what it actually was like there, the, the physicality of it and the terror of it. Because some people will say, well, um, you know, not that many people um, saw actions, so to speak, or but it doesn't seem to matter. From what I've read, it doesn't seem to matter. It was living in terror 24 hours a day. Mm. Um, the noise, the mosquitoes, the heat, the um, every other thing, it doesn't matter if you didn't have enemy contact. That's obviously worse, but it affected everybody. And it affected people in different ways. And particularly, you think of somebody who's creative or sensitive or never, ever wanted to go to war. Mm has just found themselves in hell. And what was very interesting about the books I read is that many of them talked about when they came home, and so they're flowing in the middle of the night and meet up with their families, and the next day they're walking down George Street and nobody knows about this hell. Mm. Yesterday they were in hell. Now they're back and everything is just completely normal. And they said they just absolutely did their heads in. Yeah, I mean... I'm this, so, so lucky in this generation. Believe me, I think about it quite often that I've never had to go to war and uh, mm. I, can't, I, cannot, I cannot imagine it. I, I can't imagine anyone that would actually genuinely want to go to war aside, of some, no. aside from a psychopath. But um, that's something that I do think of often just because just the, just the absolute hell, hell on earth that it is. Every single war zone, every single time. Yeah. Um, one, one aspect that I felt that you really did very well with this because the, the the whole transition of Ray and you mentioned creative um, creative souls or, you know, to maybe tenderhearted or gentle, gentle souls and how it changed. I felt like it did. It did really do that. Like um, or the, my interpretation of, of Lovebirds with Ray is that one version of Ray came back or came, went, and then another version of Ray came back and yeah. the elements were still there. It wasn't like it was complete, like, unrecognizable person within within Ray's skin. I mean it was it was Ray, but his life was forever more sort of detrimentally altered. I don't want to get into it too much, but it was just yeah. his 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 career, his aspirations, all of which was discussed obviously when they were kind of um young love with Lizzie. And yeah, that was the that was the thing that I kind of really took away from that because the next thing and the nitty-gritty of what I wanted to get into as well and get your get your thoughts on is so there was a there was a never before had there been this sort of pre-existing sort of uh, temper or aggression, and that sort of then came with rain, sort of developed mm. in time, and then alcoholism and that sort of thing. And then I found, and this is what I wanted to talk to you about: if you think it was the carry-on effect, or if it was like a familial trait that was then passed down into Tom, and then even in a wider interpretation, if. Zach's then sort of rebellious. And I mean, I, I, I was absolutely rebellious and did worse stuff than Zach, but I interpreted that as well. And I wondered if that was yeah. your sort of, if that's yeah, what hundred percent. That's exactly, um, exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. They've actually, in quite recent studies, I read about showing that um, uh, PTSD is, comes in DNA. Mm. So those of us who's, um, my grandfather was in the war. Uh, he was at Dunkirk. Uh, you know, that transmitted in some way to my dad who grew up during the war. You know, all of those things have come down generations of that damage that um, happened. And, of course, you get some level of dysfunction because, you know, alcohol is the, the um, main source of self-medication. Mm. And for you know, even 20 years ago, people weren't going to psychiatrists and being actually um, diagnosed and having uh, proper pharmaceutical drugs given to them. They were just doing what they could. They were, you know, having a joint, having a drink, just trying to numb the pain. So, yeah, so that you get that new level of dysfunction um, that goes down and the frustration of... Um, Elizabeth and Ray's sons seeing what their father was going through mm. Danny has a, is much more sympathetic but Tom finds it embarrassing and confronting and it's interesting there's one scene there I don't know if you remember that was in Sizzler where I do remember, Ray just, I, I okay. do remember. 
And a friend of mine um, who was in the Navy and she and her husband both are suffering PTSD sent me a text and she said, you've absolutely nailed that. I've been there. I've done that. I've had exactly that experience. And I think it's um, just overstimulation, people moving around, Mm. um, noise, um, everything feeling out of control. Add a couple of drinks to that and it's only going to get so much worse. It is indelible and multi-generational, isn't it? Like they, they can have that sort of effect um, mm. and just carry on like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that you've had people contact you. Yeah, the sizzler, the sizzler scene. Sizzler scene and the um, the march, the march itself when um, when they mm. see Ray cry, that, 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 that got me pretty pretty badly as well. Um, you, we, we've talked a little bit about that and we've, we've, we've mentioned also briefly about, um, about Lizzie and Zach, but I, I guess it kind of dovetails into that a little bit anyway because I felt that with Zach, Zach was sort of the starting point for everything to kind of uh, this, uh, for Lizzie to somewhat try and you know, reconcile the family or being back together. And I wondered if that was also sort of her seeing these traits and again, there's not there's not so much aggression as 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 has been kind of seen in the preceding generations of, of Tom or Ray, but I was wondering if that was something that was was maybe playing on her mind, or something you explored as well. That she she wanted to obviously help her grandson through this as best she possibly could, and she herself, given who's quite a unique character in terms of her role within her job within corrections as well. Yeah. I kind of like that too. Mm. If she's seen. The effects of of failing to act within a young person, young male's Absolutely, life. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And you're very perceptive. Yeah, I think there are times that you, you you know kind of coalesces. So suddenly you have a situation that you have a lot of experience with, and you see, you know, you ask anybody who has suicide in their family, they will be very aware of situations with friends or other people oh, this is a risk. We need to be alarmed here. Um, and so I think she's seeing, she steps up and says, okay, one, I have to save my grandson. And two, I have to use the skills that I've learned over these 30 years to keep him out of the correction system. Because once they go in, mm. very hard to get them out again. Very much. I mean, it's like the what is the the, the um, likened to the school going to the university of crime when people go to yeah, that's right. Go yeah. to that the recidivism of 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 reoffending and stuff like that is just is just through the roof. Um, well, I mean, you've been a fifteen year old boy. You know the the peer pressure and and the complete lack of risk analysis and so forethought, the impulsiveness. And you know, I remember being fifteen. I was a bit of a pain in the neck to be honest, but. Um, I th- one thing I really remember is um, that you would say something that you thought was really quite witty and you get real served for it. You're like, oh, God, what's the matter with them? Because it's your tone. You can't hear your tone. You can't hear that, that sarcasm or that contempt sounds quite droll to, your, to the teenage ear. But it obviously doesn't sound droll to anybody else. No, you've nailed that. You certainly nailed that, Amanda, for sure. Um, yeah, I, 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 you never got the impression. That the main thing that I always felt shone through as well with Zach is that he was, yeah, he was a little shit. I've been there. I've been God. Mm. I've been the veritable little shit. But there's still a good. Oh, he's just a good kid. It's just yeah. completely normal. Completely yeah. normal. And I did take one of the things that my son used to say. My youngest son used to say this thing. You'd t- explain something to him and he goes, debatable, but go on. I'm like, well, <laughs> and it's just so proud. <laughs> and it's just like, um, I don't agree with anything you've said, but push on if you want to. <laughs> I feel like, you know, that's uh, unfortunately, that's not just a teenager. I feel like you get that in some workplaces. <laughs> Certainly I've gotten it in some workplaces. I've gotten that sort of uh, lovely sort of reaffirming attitude. Look, let's talk a little bit about, because we've talked a little bit about the trickle-down effect and we've talked about the endurance of friendships. I wanted to talk a little bit about, as well, the feeling of love because we're getting into, there's a lot of really deep stuff within this kind of uh, story that's only got one perspective of one character there, Amanda. And love, and this is what I interpreted from it, is... Uh, and again, I don't want to get too much into to spoilers and, and reveal the story, but 
uh, Ray and Lizzie haven't seen each other all that much for a large component of the last 30 odd mm. years. Mm. But when things happen within the story, it's like nothing's really, there hasn't been any sort of notion of time passing. Things no. just kind of reunite like that. And I thought, and I want to ask you if there's sort of this sort of idea that you had in your mind where like love can be constant and prevailing, even when the two people in love might not see each other or have all that much to do with each other for long stretches of time. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, the whole in love, the whole romance uh, gets gets a lot of publicity. But in fact, this incredibly enduring love, not just between couples who are lovers, but between friends who will do anything for a friend they love. And, you know, that, that they can have arguments, or they can have differences or time can pass. And I think particularly when you get older, you, there are, you know, I sp- I've got a school friend that I speak to, um, I don't know, every two or three years. And I was at school a very long time ago. So this is 50 years ago. And when we just start talking, if we haven't spoken for five years, it doesn't make any difference. The next thing we're just laughing about something. And um, well, she just recently sent me a text saying, oh, man, do you remember that? I just saw a picture in a magazine. Do you remember that um, bikini your mother crocheted? And we were just killing ourselves laughing. That is a kind of a love as well. Mm. It says we've, ex- we've been through all these experiences together. We are, um, you know, we're there for each other forever. And I think that Ray and, and Elizabeth are very aware that circumstances are what parted them, mm-hmm. that they were circumstances that they could not overcome. And for, and what happened in the way that they, they stopped being together was unavoidable. And so there's no resentment, there's no... And Elizabeth defends that a couple of times to Louise, where Lee, well, Louise says something to the fact, well, I thought you two were estranged. She said, well, no, it's nothing like that. No, that's mm-hmm. not it at all. And people said, well, I don't really understand it. Well, you know, it's, it's just the understanding that they have. And we see a very, very different side of her when she is with Ray. Mm-hmm. She's, she's, she is more herself when she's with him than she is when she's not with him. This sort of connection, and you're right. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't just exist, or it's not just innate within, you know, star-crossed lovers or two people that have been madly in love for. You know, it's it's definitely can be found within, like what you said, with friendships. Like it's enduring, much the same. I have, I have as well with like people that I haven't spoken to in years, and I guarantee if I spoke to them right now on the phone, exactly mm-hmm. the same would be laughter and you know just inside jokes and stuff like that. And I wondered, like, what is it? there just seems to be this sort of ineffable connection. I don't know. Is that sort of what you were plumbing the depths of there? Because it's not like something that you try and, because it's, it's just such a deep and ineffable connection that it's so hard to try and explain. It's just something. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's prevalent within, within the relationship with Lizzie and Ginny. And it's a very sort of adjacent, but sort of similar sort of connection with, with Ray and, and Lizzie. It's just this thing that endures. And I think it's a loyalty too. I mean, Ray and Lizzie are together from when they're so young. And I've Mm. got a few friends that have been together since they were teenagers. And they just have very, very, this far down the track, very solid relationships that are undisruptable. Um, They are just there for each other. And I can imagine that um, it doesn't matter what happens in their lives. They would always have exactly the same regard and trust and care and just a complete commitment to the other person it's just like um with whatever circumstances sort of arise i guess it's just finding your new norm and life sort of mm. kind of is like weed resilient like it sort of finds a way is that kind of what you mean yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah, it's crazy. Look, tell me a little bit about because this is something that I always I must admit that I always like in books and you don't get it all the time uh, I guess it's because maybe it's kind of sort of not all that different from you know they say with movies never work with kids or animals is animals in books and there's two there's two standouts in this obviously there's Eric the budgie there's Vlad the goat mm. personal favorite but all jokes aside they are serious serious <laughs> characters and they provide 
such solace. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because these are not human beings, but they still have such invaluable impact and positive impact on their their owners, their masters in terms of it. Mm. Well, it's interesting. I've been, in a lot of my interviews, people, I've been asked, so do you have a budgie? Well, no, I don't have a budgie, but I have owned a couple of goats. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't realize that was going to be unusual. I thought everybody owned a goat at some point. But so I do know quite a lot about um, how often a goat will escape and how annoying they can be. And a goat that I owned in New Zealand um, got off its lead and got into a house that was being built and ate all the electrical wiring. So they're completely unpredictable. So I suppose um, starting with Eric, my idea of bringing Eric in, and I've never owned a budgie, so I had to do, read books on budgies and watch budgies on YouTube and get completely across the budgie thing. Um, I didn't want to have Elizabeth just talking to herself. That's just not a very good way to be in fiction. It's in fact, you almost highlight someone's loneliness by giving them somebody to talk to. I mean, you can, they can be talking to the cutlery or whatever, and then they seem a bit mad. But f- when people are very, very in love with their pets, there's something very poignant about that, I think. And she sees him as such a, a companion. And so it wasn't until I sort of put and this happens very often that you put a character on the page, next thing they're strutting about taking over. And so Eric has proved to be very popular and all he's been mentioned in so many reviews to the fact that I actually created a profile for him in Goodreads so he could go through and comment on all of the people who said they loved him. Oh, you haven't? Have you really done that? Yeah. That's awesome. Um. So then I thought, well, Vladimir is really a reflection of his owner, Baz. Mm. So they are both a bit, um, probably the two of them are a bit, um, well, all over the place, you Mm. know, literally all over the shop. And so Baz is really comfortable with a goat that's constantly being a problem and escaping and having a past life. And um, so, yeah, it was just one of those things that, um yeah i know a lot about goat behavior so i was quite comfortable with the goat <laughs> man I was, it never ceases to amaze me whenever you ask a question like you get an answer that's just totally different to what you expect like <laughs> the, the, having the goat having the goats in your past i mean like i get it nz like there's more opportunity maybe to have, to have a goat there i thought the no, budgie would be here like, as well i have you really <laughs> yeah well there you go i was just yeah i was surprised by the budgie. and i love hearing that like because I'm totally with you when it comes to, to having um, having a person talking to themselves. It gets really old really fast. I've, certainly my uh, earlier writing, I was guilty of it a little bit here and there, and it just gets too much. Really lends itself to melodrama and stuff like that, I think, really, really quickly. Yeah. So I totally get that. But it's so funny that you, because I, I'm pretty sure that Lizzie does actually this, has self-awareness, and she does mention at one point that she bought Eric because she didn't want to be the weirdo that talked to herself and stuff like yeah. that. So even having that sort of tongue-in-cheek reference, I was like, oh, that's good. That, that's I made Amanda wear linked here in terms of the logic behind that. But um, you also mentioned as well with the characters, you put them on the page and they start doing their own thing. Another thing I always like to know about as well is how much did the story change with rewriting and stuff like that? Um. Well, in the first draft, I am uh, what's called a pantser. I've got pantser, no yeah. idea what's going to happen next. Um, so, I, might, so I think that makes it really painful. I wish I did know. I just like some certainty. And sometimes when it's, you know, it's sluggish, you know, you're not moving forward. Um, I Halfway through the book, I had gone three chapters in the wrong direction. Oh, and I was in a, you know, state of angst for a couple of weeks. And I just kept thinking it's um, just plateaued. I don't know what's going to happen. I just, this is just not working. I could just mm. feel I didn't have any juice in that direction. So the minute I deleted those three chapters, which is about 15,000 words, it's like, oh, sweet relief. Uh, suddenly it's, it is, this is a horrible analogy, but it's like you were at a crossroads, you went down here 
and then the mist cleared and there was another path but you have to get rid of this this path you're on so um by the time it's done there is very little in the way of a structural edit mm. but the my editor came back to me so the chapter where um zach goes back in front of the um juvenile justice mm. uh that was added later so th that was basically the only um note in the structural edit that um he needed to go back and have another higher stake um chapter that brought that to the end but also pulled those threads of that tension right through the story that he was still answerable he's still answerable something could happen because one of the things that was important of course that he, he had a curfew and you know I'm sure that you can attest to the fact you give a 15 year old boy a curfew and it's just immediately going to be broken because he forgot it or he goes down to the skate park because that's not out out that's very true. Very, very true. You get that? <laughs> oh, I do. I do. It rang very true. Very, very, very true. Oh, my goodness, Amanda. I could tell you some stories that would beg a belief. But um, rest assured. Look, tell me. So it's interesting that uh, I, I always, you know, it's always a fascinating thing to hear people's different experiences with, with, you know, finding ruts or being stagnated within the writing process and what kind of uh, what they sort of do to, to figure it out, you know. You deleted 15,000 words. Hey, presto, you know, progress is made. What I kind of wanted to get into a little bit of core of now, because I always find that uh, it's kind of like what the, the program has been founded on and something that uh, I always find probably one of the, the most fascinating components is to learn about, uh, it can be one particular pitfall or challenge that you face, but basically at a point that all writers come to where you yourself came to, where you said, this is, this is either I keep going now or I put down the pen or close the laptop and I'll never write another word in my life. What was that sort of, uh, now you said that you had a bad analogy before the crossroads. I'm going to use a horrendous term. What was your watershed moment that made you go, yes, I need to do this. And, and Amanda Hampson prevailed. And then that's why we're talking now. Um, oh, look, I am very dogged. I've never given up on a, a manuscript. I just push on and on and on because if you had an idea and you were that committed to it and you've got this far, you know, you might have got to 50. It's, it usually happens, around, I think, around about 30 to 50,000 words. Mm. Um, and I sort of, because this was my sixth novel, I sort of have the sense that I have deleted massive amounts before and that it is very freeing because you can start to get very hooked up. And a lot of people don't realize that authors spend a lot of time on arithmetic and that's adding up how many words they've done. How many words in this chapter? How many words have I done today? How many words do I need to do? And while that can help you clawing your way up that cliff, it can become um, disingenuous in that you don't want to lose those words. So that I'm working on another novel now and I just got into an um, absolute funk and started, you know, I got to 30,000 words and then I got just over and then I started rewriting and then I went to 29 and then I went up to, to nearly 30 again, then down to, down to 28 and then up to 30. And I have honestly been like that for about two weeks mm. because there were things that were not right and I just couldn't move on until I got rid of them so now I've broken the 31,000 so that was two weeks just going around in circles so how did you this is part of the process did you did you not think about it did you did you go for a walk did you what how did you how did you crack that what did you do oh I complain a lot to people and in my head I think about um you know how much I hate writing <laughs> I think oh I'm just done with it I just want to give the advance back and give up and and then I, oh actually you know and then it often comes to me when I'm thinking of something else after yeah. having it you know all these sort of little tantrums I'm thinking of something else or I might pick up an old classic I'm just rereading Cold Comfort Farm and suddenly you are caught up in a completely different world and yet there is literally I snort on almost every page 
you know, it's just a, it's a snorter. And so suddenly you are out of the creative funk that you were in and all your little tiny silly problems and you're in someone else when you think, oh, yeah, actually, and a thought comes in sideways. Mm -hmm. Look, I think writing fiction is extremely difficult. And as people say to me, I don't know, this is blighting obvious. And they say, oh, you know, why does it take so long? You have to make up everything. You make up every person, everything they wear, everything they say, every leaf on every tree, every weather condition, you, and you have to make it work. It's not easy. No, it's not. It's not. Has it gotten, has it gotten easier for you or has the process gotten easier now that you, I mean, you're pretty prolific, you've written six. So is it. Only that I have confidence that I have the ability to get out of these situations, mm. but, um, and, and that, you know, there's that um, kind of thing where they talk about fiction writing where you have the jar and you put the rocks in first and then the pebbles and then the sand and then the water. I haven't heard that one. Tell me that one. What's, what's that? Okay, well, that's it. That's basically okay. it. So the, rocks, <laughs> the rocks are the, the seams that you're putting in. Okay. And then you're putting the pebbles so they join all those rocks together. So that's the more detail. And then you're putting in the sand and now it's all starting to fill up. And then you put in all that final, final detail, and that's the water, and that's how you get that whole um, uh, one thing. It's all become one thing, but it was put in different parts. So if if I mean people write and everybody writes in a different way, but if you write trying to put in too much detail mm. too soon, you're going to burn out, and you you don't even really know the story yet. When I teach writing classes, the analogy I use is you've got a big slab of marble and you're going to carve David. You're not going to suddenly carve his arm and put his hand and his fingernails in. That would be ridiculous because you don't know if his shoulders are at the right. You know, that's so obvious to us. But it's not so clear with writing. The first thing you're going to do is make a shape of David so that you can see the proportions of it. And then you're going to go in and make more of a shape, more of a shape, and then you're going to get down. And so the water is those fingernails. So, you know, I know that that's the process. I know, you know, humor is incredibly important to me, and I very much like that kind of incidental humor. So it's not a joke. It is um, uh, things that people say that they don't know are funny. So, for Mm. example, when... Uh, Zach and Elizabeth are stuck behind the sofa and she says what we do and he starts giving her advice from Call of Duty. Call of Duty, yeah, yes, yes. And uh, to me that I very much enjoy writing that sort of humour because suddenly you've got people who may as well be on different planets and he's saying we could melt them through that wall. And she says, we don't want to melt him. He's a family friend. Well, this is now a ridiculous conversation, but it happens. Mm. Um. So you, but you, you're not going to get that humor in on the first draft because you have to get down to that detail and that sense of the characters, their relationship. Uh, because humor comes out of something where a character you know well says something that's typical or completely atypical. So that you know that's that you know is just such a ridiculous thing for them to say, but you know why they said it. And so it's natural. It comes naturally to them. And so I know that, okay, I'm frustrated on this first draft and you have this, you know, you speed, speed, speed. Oh, this is great. And then you get stuck again, speed, speed, speed. And then when you've got, when I've got maybe 70,000 words, to me, that's the first draft. Mm. Then I will go back and expand and contract and expand and contract up to 85, 90 around there. Yeah, wow. It's it's. I'm so with you on the it taking many many times, many many different drafts and stuff like that. Because obviously, for me anyway, I mean, like the first draft is is it always sucks. I think that's that's kind mm. of common knowledge. Absolutely, yeah. It's like you telling yourself the story anyway, and mm. then yeah, like I'm about to send off novel to to literary agents at the moment, and I've been working on it for like two or three years, and right. it's gone through dozens of of edits and stuff like that you know what about you when you get to that point where you you've read 
the same words so many times, you know, but then you, you, you still, and you're talking about the expanding and tracking, expanding and tracking. That's, that's definitely, definitely correct. Um, how do you then push through that? I mean, because obviously being uh, quite a successful published author, you work with work back and forth with an editor. What about that part of the process though? Because you definitely still look at the same words lots of times. Well, there's two parts. One is I take pride in taking it off, sending it off in the most perfect condition that I can. Mm. So that it doesn't need that much editing. And one of the things I do is I read it from the back. Read so I don't, yeah, I read it backwards. So I don't read. Um, so this is when I'm done 10, 15 drafts or whatever. And well, firstly, I read it aloud. That is incredibly important. And I wouldn't think anybody should send a manuscript off without reading it aloud because when you read it aloud firstly you'll see whether your dialogue is not dialogue but some printed words on the page Mm -hmm. it's just not the way people say things um and I sort of try to use with dialogue you know I did a lot of film scripts and did a lot of film courses in that dialogue needs to be in film they use the term on the nose so on the nose dialogue is when you know People just say what they think or say what they mean, which people just don't do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it needs to have, you know, this kind of other element. It needs to have this depth. It needs to allude to something and, and have those kind of dimensions to it. So um, reading it aloud, you know, helps a lot. It helps you. because I didn't go to university. I left school at 16. I don't have that kind of formal education. I'm more like somebody who taught themselves to play an instrument. Mm. So to me, the rhythm of, of it is very important. The, um, you know, the length, you get a sense of the length of the scenes. You get a sense where if you've said, you've got a whole lot of interesting words on the page, but you've actually just said the same thing twice. When you read aloud, you'll see, oh, yes, I've actually just said that. And now I'm saying it again. We don't need to do that. Mm. And um but then once that's done, I will start and read the last paragraph and then read the second to last paragraph and the third to last paragraph all the way back to the beginning. Because what that does is it, um, you, we want to make sure that the last paragraph could not exist if it was not for the paragraph before. That was so good. And back, backwards and backwards and backwards. So, and then you'll see things really jump out that you've actually made a kind of a quantum leap between paragraphs. So suddenly you're reading this and you go, oh, that, I haven't set that up. This doesn't roll, this last paragraph doesn't roll into the paragraph that I just read because this is commercial fiction. You know, it's um, the desire is to have the reader have an experience. They're not there to see me do writerly acrobatics with, you know, fabulous similes. And, you know, I'm quite suspicious of that kind of thing. Um, and people say, oh, this is hilarious, this is amazing. And I go, oh, my God, it's just so many similes and so many adjectives and so many, um, you know, metaphors. And, you know, t- to me, it's come on in, here's an experience, come to these people's lives, listen to them speak follow them around, make your own decisions about it. Man, I'm so with you. My goodness. Yeah. I'm so with you. I wish you were my teacher, Amanda. Where were you <laughs> when I needed you in the, in the creative writing course of the university in which I went to and had an interesting experience there? Yeah, my goodness. Especially the last paragraph thing I've never before. I've interviewed a hell of a lot of people in the past few years and I've never heard I've never heard that um, that was in terms of a piece of advice. That's, that's fantastic. It's brilliant. That's what okay. I'm going to be doing because, yeah, it's just it makes so much sense. When you look at it, but just yeah, from the big big scale to the being so knee deep into it with the edits and stuff yeah. like that. But um, yeah, my goodness. The normal question I ask at this point is, what sort of advice would you give to to um to aspiring authors? But I mean, you kind of, I guess I do want to pose that question to you, but you kind of already sort of beautifully kind of given this part the last paragraph thing. But like, what what advice would you give? Well, I think you've got to spend as long as it takes to get that first manuscript right because you don't have a second chance with that. You send your manuscript off to a publisher or an agent and they send it back and we don't want it. Well, Mm -hmm. that's it. They're gone. So it needs to be as close to a book in a bookshop as it can be. 
So my first book, The Olive Sisters, I spent five years on. Um, but when it went to the publisher, it was accepted. Mm. It was that simple. Did you go for a literary agent or did you go directly no, to a publisher? I went directly to a publisher. Right. But I went through a well-known author. So okay. I asked this author uh, if he would read it and he read it and said he would like to send it to his publisher. So that got it read. They contacted me, said they'd like to meet me. We met. They said they would publish it. Mm. Um, so, and that's because it was ready. So it went mm. straight on and became a bestseller. That's because I spent a lot of time on it. I deleted at one point 50,000 words from that. I'd literally put it aside and started again. Um, so it has to be, there's just so much competition. There's just so many books coming out. And people seem to have the idea that a publisher gets their manuscript and they give it to whoever is going to read it and they read it. I can promise you that if it's crap on the first page, they're not going to read the second page. Why would they? Mm-hmm. Mm. They're not going to read, you know, they're not going to read the whole thing if it's obviously no good on the first page. Um, I don't know if anybody admits that, but it's pretty obvious to me. Um, and, you know, I judge um, competition sometimes, and it's the same thing. You know, you've got all of these entries. You're not going to read everyone end to end if you can already see that there are so many better ones than this one you're reading. Yeah, 100%. So um, the world is not waiting breathless at your door for your book. (laughs) So you might as well get it right and, you you know, you'll have a better better experience in sending it out. So true. Look, um, Amanda, thank you so much for giving me some really good advice personally uh, as well as listeners and generally for being such a great, uh, great guest talking about oh, Love Lords and the program. It's been absolutely great talking to you. Thank you very much. So everyone, that was Amanda Hampson uh, talking to me about her latest novel, Lovebirds, that's now available with the good folks of Penguin Random House. As you've now come well acquainted with the way in which things work uh, with the process here of the Right Way podcast program, I will naturally put into the description slash bio of this episode the links to that uh, that Penguin Random House page, whereby you can purchase, or author page, whereby you can purchase Amanda Hampson's uh, Lovebirds book, along with all of her other books, the other five or six that uh, that she has written there, so you can get your hot little hands on hot little copies of those. Huge thanks again to Amanda for appearing on the program, being so um, cordial and discussing her writing and her craft and her latest book. Uh, as always, thank you so much to you for giving the program a listen, for listening all to the previous episodes, and for giving a follow to the show as well, if you're listening to this on Spotify. Rest assured, got a whole lot more episodes coming up for you, fully booked up to around September, October time. Uh, disparate guests, all of them incredibly cool, all of them I'm incredibly fortunate to talk to. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to that and for keeping you abreast of everything that's going on. I will do a new video and post that soon on ye old Instagram and Facebook as well, notifying you of some of the guests that you can expect coming up as well. In the interim, I bid you adieu and thank you very much as always for listening to the program. And for those in Sydney, Melbourne, where the lockdown is, we are getting through this. Support your local bookstores, buy up big. There's a lot of time to do some reading now and there's a lot of good books out there to read. So yeah, can't encourage that enough. But in the interim, you all have a fantastic evening.